I wish either my father or my mother, or indeed both of them, as they were in duty both equally bounded, had minded what they were about when they begot me, had they duly considered how much depended upon what they were then doing, that not only the production of a rational being was concerned in it, but that possibly- Oh, get on with it! You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas. And I'm Christian. Hello. Uh, Christian, today I would like to ask you right at the beginning of the show, how goes it with your ass? Excuse me? That's the way Walter greets his brother Toby, and I thought that would be something we should start doing. How goes it with your ass? I don't know how to react to that, so I think we should maybe get on with our usual way. Okay, this week we read The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentlemen. The book is often called a proto-postmodern novel because it doesn't really have a plot as such. Instead, it is a loose connection of thoughts by the narrator Tristram Shandy about his life. But before he can talk about his life, he of course has to talk about his birth. Before he can talk about his birth, he of course has to talk about his conception. So he starts by talking about his conception, which already went wrong because at the decisive moment, his mother asked his father, but dear, haven't you forgot to wind up the clock? Which then confused him, so his humours, as Tristan puts it, were out of balance, and so the humunculus was not properly accompanied on its way to the womb. So you realize right away, this is quite a dirty book. It is concerned to a great extent with philosophy and natural philosophy and the beliefs about biology at the time. So, for example, he talks a lot about the humors. He talks about the humunculus. In the novel, Tristram gives us an account of his conception, his birth, which was also not a very auspicious occasion. Suffice to say that his nose got crushed in it. He then talks about how he nearly lost his virile member at the tender age of five years old, I believe, when he was urinating out of a window. And he generally relates the fortunes and misfortunes of his family, especially his father, Walter, but also his uncle, Uncle Toby, who received a grave injury to the groin whilst fighting in the Netherlands, and has ever since occupied in the meticulous recreation of various battles of the war. This is only a brief glimpse into the chaos that is Tristram Shandy, as a novel about everything and about nothing, and to try to sum up its contents is as futile as trying to succeed in life was being named Nimkin. The author of Tristram Shandy is Lawrence Stern, an Irish Protestant clergyman who became something of a literary sensation due to the popularity of the book. It was published in nine volumes, the first one in 1759, and the next ones in the next seven years until Stern's death. I already mentioned the popularity, maybe mainly because of the dirtiness of the novel, but such famous people as as Otto Schopenhauer or Karl Marx were big fans of the book, and it became something of a cult novel for other authors and influenced many writers of the modernist and postmodernist period. Even though at the time, for neoclassicist thought in the 18th century, the book was simply too chaotic, too lewd, and too weird. I would like to ask. Is this a novel? Because some critics have argued that we cannot properly consider this a novel, especially not a novel of the 18th century, because 
for them, the tradition are the kinds of novels like Pamela or Robinson Crusoe, because Tristram Shandy is more of a farcical nature or a parody of the emerging novel genre. Of course, if you consider the historical context, you might consider Tristram Shandy to be a parody, because it is very much an attempt to deal with the expectations one has for a novel at that time, trying to replicate life in an exciting but yet somehow realistic way. And main focus of Tristram Shandy is definitely that this is to a certain extent futile, that you can't put life between cover and the back of a book. No matter how much you try, you will never emulate the reality of life by writing a novel. And the conventions of a novel are not fitting for such an undertaking. I also think that it depends on how you see the novel. Those people who see the first novel as being Robinson Crusoe, which takes the tradition of the spiritual diary and travel accounts and turns them into a fictional prose telling, they would probably argue that this is not a novel. Whereas if you see the beginning of the novel in Spain with Cervantes and Don Quixote, then this is, of course, a novel. And Stern himself references Don Quixote again and again and again in his book. I agree, and I think it would be a bit too short-sighted to consider this a non-novel parody novel or just a proto-postmodernist novel. Because I think what Stern does is to open up the spectrum of the novel using the form to show what can be done with it by breaking the existing conventions. But it is still a novel. It might be the predecessor of more postmodernist fiction. It has the same impetus. It has the same formal expression. But it is still a novel and tries to express ideas that are very central to the time and central to fiction of the time. It's not like some sort of alien life form that has come from the future. It is very much a product of the 18th century, just in a different guise than Robinson Crusoe or Henry Fielding's novels. Somewhat bluntly put, you could say that the novel emerged in the 18th century in England and immediately people started setting up rules for it. Immediately people started confining it and pressing it into forms. There are a couple of novels, Tristram Shandy being in the vanguard, that broke these rules and were really exciting and experimental. But then those vanished. And then we had a long slog of dull, formalistic novels. And it's only in the 20th and late 20th century that people started breaking up that mold again, writing interesting, fun, experimental stuff again. I think that's too short-sighted again. The 19th century has its great deal of experimental literature, but maybe none of it was as radical as Tristram Shandy. And coming back to the comparison to postmodern literature, what I found interesting was that not only does it share the same formal traits, the self-consciousness, the intertextuality, the fragmentation, but also it uses these formal traits to express a certain worldview, you might say, that is common to postmodernism as well, namely this idea of, yeah, we can't really understand the world as it is. And maybe we shouldn't even try because then we would end up like Paul Tristram, who I think is actually quite full of despair about trying to express his life and opinions, as he says, in the novel form. But he knows he will never be able to do that. And this almost bleak outlook, that is something that might as well come in the age of literature after 1945. Stern actually comments 
himself consciously on the fact that he is breaking conventions when he lets Tristram say that he wishes to trace his entire history up over so from the egg, as Horace put it. And then Tristram says, oh, but Horace doesn't actually recommend that and that he will not stick to these rules or any other man's rules. So Stern tells you, I know about all these rules, but I am breaking them with relish. And that is something else that I found very interesting. Walter Shandy and Tristram Shandy both are intellectuals, but they are more gentlemanly scholars. Walter never had a formal education. Tristram does imply that he is a fellow of Christ College, but still they are gentleman philosophers. They have read the classics, though in Walter's case very eclectically. For example, he has not read Cicero, but they hold forth on the subject of philosophy and the classics at length and quote from them again and again. But they are also very foolish, on the other hand. Though we learn very little of Tristram himself, because, as we said, when the book ends, we have learned only about his conception, his birth, the unfortunate incident involving the sash window, and bits of his grand tour, even though there he also mainly focuses on his father and Uncle Toby. And it is interesting that oftentimes Tristram references books where he could look up a fact or look up the exact wording of a quote, but then he says, oh, I cannot be bothered to do that right now. So the book is written in a very rapid conversational style. I think that is something that also ties the book very much to the 18th century, because we're talking about, obviously, the Age of Enlightenment, and this idea of learning, of self-fulfillment in an intellectual way plays a, a major role. Tristram quotes John Locke quite a few times, or at least he thinks he quotes him, probably he's not quite sure, misinterprets him. And that is an interesting idea, that you have the impetus of the Enlightenment, this idea of trying to know things, trying to know as much as possible, and even Toby in his own kind of OCD way regarding his hobby horses, the fortifications, has the same kind of idea that he wants to know and understand as much as possible. But what the novel basically says is, again, it's not really possible. The human mind has its limits. And Tristram Shandy is a novel about these limits, that there are always accidents, there are always emotions, there are always things that come in the way that keep you from going that way. So humans are not just purely rational intellectual beings, but they are beings that are ruled by their whims, their emotions, their sexuality, most certainly, and that these things come in the way. And that is also something that Tristram and his narrative position seems to embody, that he tries as hard as possible to give an objective count of his life. Can't do it. I think Foucault identified this need to impose order on nature and to put nature, as it were, into a table and classify it as a central mark of the Age of Enlightenment. I could go and find the book and look it up, but I'm not going to. But it is very interesting, this narrative voice you've already alluded to. Sometimes it felt to me as if we're not actually reading the book that Tristram writes, but we're reading a script of him reading out this book to an audience in a coffee house, maybe, or some other setting. Men are present, but also women are present. And actually, at one point, he admonishes a, he admonishes a female reader for not reading closely enough and sends her back to reread the previous chapter and then asks her when she comes back, well, have you found the passage I was alluding to about why my mother is not a Catholic, which is a very obscure reference to him needing to be born before he could be baptized. Yes, there's also the nice sequence where he talks about a potential critic 
critics of his novel, and not only about the potential critics, but also about the chambermaid of the potential critic, whose name is obviously Dolly. And for Tristram, at least, it's perfectly okay to mention that, to always address the audience, whatever that audience may be like, and to digress, not because he has the need to be somehow narcissistic, more because he really, really, really wants to relate to the audience, really make them understand. He says, as you proceed further with me, the slight acquaintance which is now betwixt us will grow into familiarity. So your hopes to befriend us. But then weirdly, there are also a lot of passages that can only be part of a written book. For example, famously, after the parson Yorick dies, there's a black page. And there's also the really brilliant passage where he talks about how the narrative so far has gone and he draws these squiggly lines relating the plot and says that he wants to go from now on in a straight line. And obviously the whole next chapter where he goes on his grand tour to France is one giant digression. So there is a lot of irony, obviously, in that and a lot of humor. A really good example of the digressive and ludicrous style of the novel is chapter 7 in the first volume. He starts talking about the local midwife. Then he talks about the parson's wife, who took a liking to the midwife and wanted to further her in her endeavors. Then he talks about the parson. Then he goes back to the midwife again after he talked about the parson's ancestry and speculating that the parson Yorick is probably related to the fool of the same name from Shakespeare. Then he talks about Didius. Who is Didius? We don't know. And then at length he gets to hobby horses, which is another big topic of the book. These kinds of things that gentlemen do that are not their profession, but they still spend a lot of time and energy in pursuing these activities, such as mineral collecting, or in Uncle Toby's case, the minute recreation of certain battles. Or I, I don't know, can you think of anything that people nowadays do that is not their job, but that they spend a lot of time for? Like podcasting, maybe? Or, as in Tristram's case, of course, the writing of his memoirs, his life and opinions, which we are reading at the very moment, of course. That is an interesting conjunction, that writing is a big topic of the novel. So again, there is this postmodern notion of self-consciousness, of self-reflexivity, of writing about writing. And interestingly enough, as you mentioned, writing on the one hand seems to be something quite trivial, a gentleman's endeavour. I mean, even the title Tristram focuses on that. He is a gentleman. He doesn't need to do that but he chooses to do so. On the other hand, however, writing is seen as something quite essential, something very important, something that needs to be said. And that is an interesting combination, that literature seems to be seen as something that is simply there for pure entertainment. But at the same time, it's also there to create something new. And maybe here you can understand why many critics have seen a parallel between writing and sex in Lawrence Stern's work. Since you mentioned sex, let's talk a bit more about that, because it is probably one of the most prevalent themes of the novel. As we said, it starts out with an account of his conception, but then he also talks at length about sexual relations. In fact, we mentioned Uncle Toby was injured in the Battle of Namur, but he was injured by a stone falling onto his groin, so quite a delicate place, of course. Also, we hear about noses a lot, and as Tristan says himself, when he talks about noses, he really means noses, and he makes it very, very clear to everyone that by no account he is talking 
about penises, but I would just say qui s'excuse s'accuse. There's also obviously the famous ending where all of the characters seem to come together to tell a really pointless story about the bull of one of the characters and Yorick the parson says yeah it's a cock and bull story so it is a pointless story which might describe the whole novel but at the same time it's also a cock story excuse my French and again it starts with something sexual that goes wrong it ends with something sexual that goes wrong the mating of the bull so the topic pervades the whole novel and again it's something about limits sex isn't something that is to be celebrated it's something that is to be discussed is it just for entertainment is it just for procreation toby says of walter that he admires his brother because for him sex is only about creating new life and that is something to strive for and this discussion this uncertainty about sex is very clearly in the same vein as the uncertainty about what to say what to write what to know so in the end sex is not something lewd or something vulgar it's basically on the same level as natural philosophy or the question of mortality and treated with the same kind of interest but also ambiguity at one point uncle toby's servant actually relates the story of how his brother married the widow of a jewish butcher and he describes how his brother went to the butcher shop thinking well maybe i will get a wife out of this afternoon but even if not i will still get a pound of sausages and then they make sausages together and that is their wooing so love marriage sex meat and sausages are all mixed up in a big confusing somewhat disgusting pile this ambiguous attitude to sexuality also comes out in a conversation that walter and his wife so tristram's parents have whilst in bed as it is alluded after having had sex as they do on every first sunday of the month where they talk about the difference of pleasure and convenience and Walter accuses his wife of always thinking more about pleasure whereas he thinks a lot more about convenience. There is a general current of attitudes that might be called misogynistic in the novel though I think it can be said that Stern just hates everybody and at one point he actually talks about men who do not want to get married and he says that there were only about five good men who did not have an inclination for marriage in history but he excludes from the good men all misogynists and calls them bastards but still you might say well stern himself is one of these bastards because women are always described as fickle prone to desire pleasure and generally they mess things up you might see it also in a more positive light and say that women are actually the more rational part of humanity that men try to follow their somehow convoluted ideas whether it is philosophy or religion or a hobby horse while women have a more realistic grasp but yeah i agree that is a strange separation and one that is sexist in either a negative or a positive way paraphrasing freud 
Where there is Eros, there also has to be Thanatos. And something that I would like to talk about is the notion of death in Tristram Shandy. Because I find it to be much more pervading than you might think at first glance. One of the few obvious mentions of death is the death of Tristram's brother, Bobby. But it is treated in a very strange way, almost as a kind of afterthought. And not much attention is paid to how Bobby died, more about how Walter reacted to it... And Tristram never shows much grief or any other kind of emotional reaction. It is also turned into something to be intellectualized and philosophized. At the same time, though, seventh book, his Grand Tour from France, is started because, as he describes, he had an encounter with death. And although it never becomes quite clear what this encounter was, the idea that death played a role in this and he's escaping from it seems to play a larger role. Though the death of Bobby and the reaction to it was actually one of the points where I really engaged with the novel emotionally. I was generally very amused by the novel and entertained by it, but there it really struck me because Walter is an intellectual. He is obsessed with his own intellectual theories. For example, the theory that only big noses lead to an auspicious life or that the first name of a man is essential in determining his destiny. But then his oldest son dies, his firstborn, and the only reaction he is capable of is to philosophize and to think of quotes from the ancients and to think of things to say, things that philosophers have written about the deaths of their children. He cannot actually engage with the tragedy of his own family. So this is one of the worst things that could happen to him. After we have already heard about the horrible circumstances of the birth of his second son, and he cannot react to it in any emotional way. Neither can Uncle Toby, who is not such a calcified intellectual as his brother is, but even he cannot properly engage with the death of his nephew. The only one in the house who finds something moving to say is Uncle Toby's servant. But even he drops his hat and says, one moment we are alive and the drop of a hat we are not. Even that is undercut because he does it again and again. Nobody really takes notice of it. And that was a point in the novel that really struck me. Because on some level I can really identify with Walter. <laughs> I know that I have my own hobby horses and even though, of course, I'm not as learned a man as he is, I tend to reproduce the learning that I do have at length in society, often to the chagrin of those around me. So I could really empathize with him and also with this idea that maybe sometimes this is to the detriment of the expression of actual emotion. Well, if we're talking about personal connections here, I have very much identified with Tristram as he tries to escape death. I think I've read Tristram Shandy for the first time at the time when the idea of mortality was still an idea that was a bit too much for my teenage mind. So this notion of coming to terms or not coming to terms with one's mortality, that is something I can connect to as well. And that is why I see the despairing aspect, the sad and futile aspect of Tristram Shandy much more than the comical, ironic or postmodern aspect. Because Tristram says, 
says that he is basically writing against time. If he goes on like he does right now, he makes a little calculation. He says, well, I'm living much faster than I'm writing and he won't have the time to finish his account of his life. And that is obviously a kind of funny idea because we know how he writes and he doesn't even get to his own birth. But at the same time, it's also a kind of dispiriting idea. Ars longa vita brevis. There are certain ideas in life, most obviously the idea that is ending at some point, that you can't grasp with the usual conventions, with the usual ways, that you can't grasp with philosophy, religion, or with fiction. Well, how do I follow that? As I already said, I can identify with Walter to a great extent, but also the book really caters to some of my hobby horses, you could say. I am, of course, as a student of history, interested in history, especially of the 17th and 18th century, but especially gender relations, ideas about the body, ideas about sexuality, and how all these things shifted at that time. So Tristram Shandy feels as if it was written expressly for me. <laughs> It is a lot about sexuality, about attitudes towards sexuality. He discusses the theory of the humors at length, which is my favorite historical fallacy. He discusses the homunculus. He also discusses the idea that you might insert a little tube into a man's penis to baptize all of the homunculi or all of the sperms in his testicles, which is very disturbing and weird, but I like this weirdness of these early modern ideas. It's an interesting conjunction, again, of religion, which still plays a major role. They discuss a lot of theological ideas. But then it's the Enlightenment. You do certain things in a scientific way. So, hey, why not baptize already the sperms this way? And then the book goes into the shift from mainly female midwifery to males as midwives. And that is just a point where I say, okay, you have got my complete and undivided attention. This was one of the major shifts in birthing procedures in the early modern period, which had great consequences for the manner in which we deliver children in Europe to this day. And the fact that this is discussed so complexly in a novel from the time was overwhelmingly satisfying to me. It's interesting that you mentioned this idea of modernity, of coming to a more modern age, not only with regards to intellectualism or ideas of enlightenment, but also technical social changes that happen at that time. And I think it's interesting to consider what isn't in the novel, namely that the 1750s and 60s were also the beginning of the industrialization in Britain. And obviously that doesn't play any role in Tristram Shandy. Rather, Shandy Hall is the prototypical English manor house, the seat of the gentry, and the gentleman doesn't consider such things as the spinning jenny or the steam engine. But the idea of change, of modernization, is still very much part of the novel. One last question that I would like to pose, and that comes back to the beginning. If we consider Tristram Shandy to be a typical product of the 18th century, is it still something that we should read nowadays? We have our own postmodern literature to consider. Why should we read such an outlier as Tristram Shandy nowadays? I think we both agree that Tristram Shandy is a great book. And it is a good book as well. Very much so. Very much so. But I don't think you should necessarily read it. I think you should read it if you're interested in the 18th century. I think you should read it if you like postmodern novels that are so playful and you would like to get some background on where that came from. But last 
episode, we talked about To Kill a Mockingbird, which I believe is a novel that everyone can and should read. The episode before that, we talked about Lolita, which is a great novel. We also agreed on that. And everyone who is interested in very complex literature should read that as well. But Tristram Shandy? I think not necessarily. If you like the 18th century, if you like all these topics we have discussed... And if you like this very experimental style of literature, you might get something from it. But I don't think it's as universal a book as the others that we've already discussed. I hate to agree with you because I really like Tristram Shandy and reading it for the first time as I did really opened my eyes for the possibilities of literature that nothing is as clear or as limited as you might think it is. That even a book published as early as this one has immense experimental possibilities. But in the end, yeah, if you're interested in the 18th century and what ideas were prevalent at that time, then Tristram Shandy is essential, maybe even more essential than the more classic novels of the time. Fuck Robinson Crusoe, seriously. I can't disagree with that either. But yeah, it's not something that you have to understand to understand the history of literature. It's more something that you should read if you would like to understand more about the history of ideas in general. And yeah, that is already a more advanced level, maybe. Still, read it. It's great. It's entertaining. It is immensely intelligent. But suppose you want to read an 18th century novel that is really irreverent, breaks a lot of rules, and that is incidentally also written by an Irish Protestant clergyman. But you want a bit more of a plot than in Tristram Shandy to ease yourself into it. I would recommend Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. Be careful, though, that you pick up a complete edition that has all four books, not just the Lilliput and Brobdingnag with the little people and the giants, but also the one where he visits the floating island where lots of crazy stuff is going on, and especially the fourth volume where he meets the Huynims, a race of talking horses. The book is very funny, and in many aspects it is very similar to Tristram Shandy in its irreverence and in its self-reflexivity as well. That is a solid recommendation. But if you liked the postmodern gimmickry of Tristram Shandy, the tales within tales, the self-reflexivity, and you also like the lewd factors, the erotic aspects, let's put it this way, then the book I would recommend is The Manuscript Found in Saragossa by Jan Potocki, a Polish nobleman who wrote who wrote around the turn from the 18th to the 19th century. And his novel is just as crazy in many respects as Tristram Shandy, although in a more supernatural fashion, you might think at least. The novel takes place in Spain and also takes up many aspects of the Arabian Nights, mixes it with the historical context, the Napoleon Wars, and it is also much more in the vein of the Gothic novel, in certain respects, again. It's hard to describe. The plot is maybe a bit more coherent than with Tristram Shandy, and it's also sexier. If you like threesomes with maybe supernatural girls and then waking up in the next morning under a hanged man, this is just the right novel for you. I gotta check that one out, definitely. So those are our recommendations. But suppose you have read Tristram Shandy and you could also really identify with Walter and you thought, I'd like to be a polymath. I'd like to be a man who knows about almost everything there is to know in life. Well, if that's the case, we can only recommend you go and check out Science Pie. 
podcast by our friends, also from Heidelberg, who basically talk about everything there is to know. Science, literature, history, all these things are dealt with at an incredibly sophisticated level. So go and listen to Science Pie in German or in English, get educated, become a polymath. And if you don't want to go as far, but simply be entertained by us and our ramblings, if you want to listen to us, you know the drill. Our homepage is outsideofadogcast.com. You can find us on iTunes. Please subscribe, rate us, give us feedback, recommend us. Now, before we come to the end, we would like to move on to listener mail. This comes in from Laura, last name withheld. And she writes... Hey guys, I really enjoyed the last episode. I read To Kill a Mockingbird when I was in school and you did a great job reminding me what an interesting book this really is. However, I did notice something which probably isn't even your fault. You don't really talk about characters. I just don't think you're doing yourself a favor by simply talking about form and narration in a book where you can find a new, fairly interesting character every two pages. I was especially taken aback by the fact that you don't really talk about the character Scout, but rather focused on analyzing the narrator Scout looking back at the events. When really, there's so much more to see in Scout than just pitying her for having to listen to people telling her how she should behave, which doesn't really particularly concern her. Instead of focusing on Atticus's supposed shortcomings character-wise, it would have been nice to see your take on why Scout and Jim idolize him so much. After all, he is their only parental figure. Or maybe what you thought makes Scout likable or unlikable. I just remember connecting really well with her when I was a girl, so I would have appreciated a more in-depth analysis of her character. TLDR, keep doing what you're doing because you're absolutely great at it, but maybe consider talking about characters more. Best wishes and looking forward to the next episode, Laura. Thank you, Laura, for that mail. And that is actually something that is a problem with our perspective at times, because obviously we still have that scholarly perspective on literature, even though we talk about it in a more relaxed fashion. But with a scholarly context, character often simply falls under the table. That is a good reminder for us to do more often what we did today to connect to the books we read on a more personal level as well, not just analyze them, but really think about why do we like them? Why do we like certain characters, for example? So I do not want to impose on you, of course, but let's just briefly come back to Scout. I found it really interesting how Scout starts out in the novel as a person who is very much defined by the people around her, so Jem and Atticus. She really looks up to Jem, and when he tells her that she is behaving like a girl... That's the most horrible thing for her. And then she ends the novel as a much more self-confident character, which is a great development for her to go through. But also, I found her perspective really intriguing. Childlike, but not stupid. She doesn't know everything that's going on, but she's not that easily fooled either. I also like that, yes, she still has very complex views on herself in comparison with Jem, with Dill, and so on. And I think that comes across quite nicely. However, I still think that Scout as a character is, to a certain extent at least, a cipher, a kind of stand-in for the reader, who can identify with her in order to get a better grasp of the world she describes. So if you want to have your listener mail read out in the show, write to outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. Also, you can find us on Facebook, give us feedback there. We also sometimes post something on our blog. For example, we might post something about the film version of Tristram Shandy, A Cock and Bull Story. So, goodbye. And, Christian, what are we going to read next week? 
we are going to be watching The Watchmen, or rather, we are going to read Watchmen, the graphic novel by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Wait, comic books aren't literature, are they? Well... Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. So there's a lot of self. De- there is a lot of self de- depreciation. De- deprecating. Anger. So there is a lot of irony, obviously.